Good morning. Uh, we are still looking at <clears throat> uh, the nature of the church. That was profound. Now, the nature of the church. What does it mean to be um, a church that um, is completely sold out for the Lord? And what I want to do is I want to start us from a passage in Acts chapter 2. And uh, just so you know, uh, the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels. And the third Gospel is Luke. And Luke is a doctor, and he's very detailed. And so he wrote um, uh, a, a beautiful Gospel, and then he actually wrote the Acts of the Apostles. He wrote a whole other book in the New Testament uh, about the actions of the Apostles of God. And uh, this is taken from Acts chapter 2. And to give you context, the chapter before, he talks about Jesus and how Jesus um, ascends. And so he leaves the earth and he ascends into heaven. But uh, what he does is as he ascends, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, descends. And the world is changed. Some of you think that the Holy Spirit was fully poured out in the Old Testament. That is not true. He was not. We know that God removed the Holy Spirit from King Saul. The Holy Spirit was not poured out as he was in Acts chapter 2. And so this was a, uh, this changed the world. Th this second chapter of Acts literally changed the world because the third person of the Trinity is poured out on the world. In fact, uh, Luke says, the last days, or the eschaton, the last days have begun. So all of those prophecies, it started, right? It is the new kingdom of God has started. And so here, we're going we're gonna to start with uh, verse 40, and we're only going to go through eight verses. Um, and, and so essentially, this is the chapter where the church begins. And what we're going to do is we're going to hopefully take some, some wisdom and truth and apply it to our lives so that uh, tomorrow will be different. I want you to be changed tomorrow. I want tomorrow, Monday, uh, November the 4th, to be different than November the 3rd. I want you to literally uh, have more power on November the 4th than you did on November the 3rd. And we... All right. We... Oh, are we okay? Maybe we're not. Yeah. It's like an like a, a, a exclamation point when I say something. All right. <laughs> All right, I'll, let's just try it here. We're going to keep going here. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And this is Peter. So who's refer? Uh, this is, when, when they say he, this is Peter, the apostle of, of God. Okay, just real quick. Great. I'm just going to put this right here. Is that on? Okay, good. All right, how's that sound? You, you, you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Okay, good. All right. This is Peter. In the first half of the book of Acts, Peter, who is in, in the inner circle, closest three. Uh, so, verse 40. With many other words, he, being Peter, he warned them. He warned the church, the people who were being saved. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And that's the verse I'm going to really emphasize this morning. I'm going to read that again. Save yourselves 
from this corrupt generation, West Town Church. Put your name in there. Those who accepted his message were baptized. So Peter preached the gospel. Whoever accepted it, they were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So how did people in the church act? What would authentic believers... This is the beginning of the church. The, the first church, uh, churchgoers, what did they do? Obviously, you want to compare and contrast your own behavior with what they did. Here's what truly church people did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God, and to fellowship. Do we do that? And to the breaking of bread, which would be the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Do you do that? Do I do that? Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Because this was the starting point. What God had done. Is West Town that? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Verse 45. They even sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Verses 42 through 47. I just, I've been asking myself that question. Is that us? Because when Peter's talking about the church, he's describing uh, just the first century church. And they were hated. These people in the church were hated by Rome. I mean, this was not a popular thing to do. They were, they were saved. And, and so Peter looks at them and he pleads with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. How many of you in this room believe that salvation encompasses the forgiveness of sins, period? That you have sins and you have guilt, and the only reason you're here is because you're thankful that your guilt is covered by the blood of Jesus. Of course that's true. Of course that's a major part of the gospel. But that is not what Peter's talking about here. When we talk about salvation, we talk about it in terms of the forgiveness of Jesus covers our original guilt. But we forget there's a whole nother dynamic. It's not just your guilt, and we all have it. And so when we, we said all those things during our time of silent confession, we have guilt, but he covers that. But we are truly corrupt. Salvation is supposed to save us from the corruption inside of us. Do you make a distinction between your guilt and your corruption? Because the Bible does. The Bible says not only are you guilty, but you're also corrupt. And salvation covers both of those. And many of us just thank God all the time for saving us from our guilt. Because we don't want to walk around with that. And that's beautiful. I mean, are you kidding me? What a, what a gift. But Peter says this. 
save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Do you know what you're a part of? You're a part of corruption. So what is Peter asking Westtown Church to be a part of? Peter is asking not for a private or an individual conversion. He's asking you and me to identify with a whole new community. Like literally a whole new society that functions against corruption. That's what he's calling us into. Do you see salvation as being part of that? Or do you just have a bunch of skeletons in your closet and you want to get those justified? You want to get those uh, covered? Of course, that's what Jesus has done. But that's not what Peter, that's not what the church, uh, as defined by Peter in this, as defined by Luke in writing this book, uh, defines it as. So what he's saying is salvation offered to us is not simply rescue from guilt, but also from the corruption inside of you and inside of me. Not just the things that we've done. Or He is saying this. Look, when you look in the world um, and you see that the world is malformed, when you see, and I, and I love, and Tim Keller uses this word a lot, when you look at your life, and here's what I see, I see this. I don't see an integrated life. I, de- I see a disintegrated life. I literally see disintegration. Like the world is falling apart. And Peter is saying, I don't want to give you just forgiveness of sins. That's not what the gospel offers. I want to address what? The radical disintegration that you all experience. The disintegration of of our lives because think about it right now think about just just think about your relationships right now those that you 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 don't care for those that you don't put time into what happens to those relationships that you don't you don't make the phone call you don't you know shoot the text out you don't write the email what happens to those things as time and distance play play themselves out they fall apart you drift apart Little misunderstandings turn into big misunderstandings. And what? Relationships are strained. People don't connect like they used to. And and so we see this. When you really look at your world, everything is running down. Everything begins to uh, to feel corrupted. And once you realize that, and that you realize that the longings of your heart are what? In uh, you know, kind of disjunction with the world as it is, um, we realize, man, it, it does. You, you can easily become depressed. You can easily become a pessimist, a pessimist as far as what the world uh, has, or how, how you see the world. And this goes, goes hand in hand with what Genesis 3 says. You know? That we were built to love and serve God, but because of sin, what happens? Not only are we guilty, but corruption has come and taken over the world. But here, I want you to hear this from the Old Testament. That Isaiah, in in chapter 65, he does give us a prophecy, a promise from God. Um, In the Old Testament, he says this, But behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things, right, things corrupted, um, they will come to an end. 
The sound of weeping will be heard no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. So we know Isaiah says, wait, wait, there's going to come a time when things are going to turn and it will get better. Isaiah 35 says this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, of deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy these are all the promises and here's the thing about Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2 says this the last days they're here you know all this waiting that we've done Isaiah was written in 700 BC and now we're in the you know 30 35 AD it's time the world has changed and the new creation has come the new kingdom has come. And Peter is saying this to you and to me. I have a salvation for you, West Town, that's utterly comprehensive, absolutely different. I have a salvation to offer you that literally will reverse the corrupting power of human existence. And it starts right now. That's what he has to offer. And I think many of us don't even realize that. We don't even realize the gift of the last days the gift of the holy spirit that is the type of organization the church is supposed to be about right he's saying i have something that will heal the results of all sin i have something that will heal you physically spiritually emotionally socially but some of us don't want to believe that we want to stay pessimist you want to hedge your bets He's saying a day, the day has arrived. And Christ is saying, look, I want you literally to understand salvation, not as just covering original guilt, but now literally transforming, renewing original corruption. But here's the thing. We're American, right? We're Western people. We don't talk like this. We don't like this kind of stuff, right? We are secular individuals. And when we think of salvation, we almost always think of some kind of channel, some kind of power coming right down into us. And here's the thing, is what Peter's saying is, we're being saved into an ours, A or O-U-R-S, not a yours. Not an individual thing. You are being saved into an hour, into a church, into a group, into a what? He says, save yourselves. Here's what Peter says. Save yourselves from this what? Corrupt generation. What does it mean? What do you mean, Peter, by a generation? How would you define the word generation? I know how I would, how I would define a generation, right? A generation is a people or a worldview that what? Results from certain historical events. Right? Certain events that happen in your, in your generation. And, and this is what brings us together. It does not mean the church is a club. Many of us think of the church as a club. I've been part of a bluegrass kind of club 
or group, which is great. It's a great little outlet to play the mandolin, see a you know a banjo played and a you know a, a six string guitar and you know a, a double bass. That's great. Um, have you ever been part of a sports team or a, a bowling league or, or some kind of club that does something in in your in your in your neighborhood? It's, it's an outlet for you, but let me ask you this. Do clubs um, affect the way that you spend your money? Do clubs affect the way you deal with other races? Do clubs or you know, th- these kind of groups affect the way you deal with your emotional problems? Is it going to affect the way men and women treat each other or your business practices no why because it's a club it's just an outlet and some people view the church like that i need a good spiritual outlet let me join a club like a church it's a good thing right i'm a part of a number of different organizations one of them is the church it's a club and peter's like no it's not right it's not a hobby it's not a club And so when you view, when you have a certain perspective on something, um, things literally, they they transform because people of a generation are formed by what? Distinct stories. Think about the greatest generation, right? The greatest generation. They're informed by what? World War II. They're informed by the Great Depression. I remember Lou's grandmother uh, talking about having to live in a house with multiple families and getting blocks of butter, right? They would have multiple families and they have this refrigerator with blocks of butter. And you know what she would do to her block of butter? Diet blue. <laughs> because she would know if anybody took her butter because their food would look, look blue. That's how she would know, right? And she didn't want, any, she didn't want anybody taking her butter, right? Because money was at a premium, do you think my generation and the Great Depression generation looks at money differently? You better believe it does. Do you think my generation and my great uncle, who literally died in the middle of the Pacific because a kamikaze uh, plane flew into this worship in the middle of the Pacific, he died. Do you think he would, he would be patriotic? and sing God Bless America different than I would? You better believe he would. What I would see is maybe kind of hokey or overly patriotic. He would say, no, no, no. We stomped out Hitler. We stomped out the Japanese. Are you kidding me? We saved freedom. You sing God Bless America and think it's hokey. I see it as a game changer, right? That's the way we form a generation. It's a whole new worldview. Why? Because of these events. And here's what Peter is saying to you and to me. When you become a Christian, it's not something you do on Saturdays. It's not something you do in your private time. It's something that what? That literally defines you. You become a member of a new generation. Save yourself from what? This corrupt generation. Every other religion says salvation comes through principles. The Bible tells us that God came, what? God came because 
something historically happened in history that's, you know what? Far more formative than the Great Depression. Far more formative than World War II. Far more formative than Vietnam. Far more formative than 9-11. Far more. What's the story? Here's what Peter is trying to tell you and me. When you save yourself from a corrupt generation, you define yourselves from the story of God that started in the Garden of Eden. That the world was to be a garden, but you know what mankind turned it into? A jungle. That's what Adam and Eve turned it into. A jungle. But here's the beautiful thing. He didn't give up on you. Even though it became a jungle, here's what he said in Genesis 15. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to appear to my man Abraham. And I, out of my electing, sovereign, gracious love, I'm going to make people. I'm going to make a nation. I am going to make them out of your descendants, Abraham. I promise you. And you can't outsend me. I promise you, you can't outsend me. I'm going to come and I'm going to make you a people. And here's what I, I want you to do. I want you to change everything. And here's what I want. I want you to read the book of Exodus. I want you to change how you handle money. I want you to change how you handle a foreigner. I want you to change how you handle different races and how you look at yourself, how you treat women and how you treat men. That's what I want you to do. And we, you know, he... Abraham said, okay. Moses said, okay. We're going to do it. And you know what happened? The Old Testament says, utterly failed. Like literally the people of, of Israel utterly failed. God said, I want you to be a light to the nations. And they weren't. Because they could not carry out the law of God. And so if you read the first 39 books of the Bible, it literally is a bit depressing. It seems like a big failure. But here's the thing. The climax of the story is this. The formative historical event of the Bible is that a man shows up. One man shows up. And here's what he says. He goes, um, the entire history of Israel is going to be reimagined or recapitulated in me. And you know how the people of Israel came out of Egypt? I'm going to come out of Egypt. All right? I'm going to literally come out of Egypt. And you know what I'm going to do like Israel did? I'm going to wander the wilderness too. I'm not going to do it for 40 days, but I will do it for 40 day, or for 40 years. I will do it for 40 days, and I'll be tempted by Satan. But you know what I won't do? I won't ever sin, even though Israel did. And then once I get out of the wilderness, you know what I'm going to do? Instead of having 12 tribes of Israel encamp around me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to get 12 disciples. And I'm going to show how to what? Take all the 613 Old Testament laws, distill them down to 10, distill them down to 2, and do two things. Love the Lord my God, my Father, with everything I have, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus did it perfectly. That's the formative event. That's the event that what? Saves us from our what? Corrupt generation. It's a generational defining event. And what Peter is asking you and me to do is define, define our generation by the events of Jesus, not World War II, not 9-11. To the first century saying, don't define it by... Um, these corrupt Roman emperors, Nero or Domitian or Tatian, don't, don't define them by those things. Define them by what I have done because you know what Jesus has done? He's cared for the orphan. He's cared for the widow. He's cared for the poor. He's loved his neighbor as himself. And then what does he do finally on that one dark stormy night? He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay the price 
that years ago God said he would pay. On that night, he, he's going to do what? He's going to bear the curse of the people of God. He's going to take on the curse that we should get. He is going to get. He is going to receive it. And ultimately, he is going to be cast out. He is going to be exiled, right? And, th and that would be a formative event for us. And then he's going to receive the curse that we should receive. And then he's going to die. And then his story is going to become your story. Because he died in your substitute. 3,000 people that were just saved. Are you willing to get baptized? To walk up in front and have some water placed on you? To show that that's, you're uniting yourself with Christ? Are you willing to do that? These are the timeless truths right, of the Scripture. That is what Christianity says. The Bible gives us historical events that God broke in and He says, you know what, now Jesus' story is your story. This is what's going to define your generation. There's another corrupting story of your generation that you could define yourself by. Like, I'm going to be honest, how well you do at work. What are the grade students you get right now? Is that your defining story? Your marriage. Your body. Like, the story of my life is my physical body. How it does. How I look. That's what the world says. You know, one of the crazy things that we've seen in the news, and I don't know if it's real, but it was a little bit inspiring, is to see a guy like Kanye West say, I have, you know, the, the, the woman that every guy wants, I have billions of dollars, but you know what, none of that means anything, so I'm going to do an album that says, Jesus is King. And that was on Times Square this week. Like, literally, there's a blue record, and everybody was reading the name of the album, which said this, Jesus is King. You know how many millions of people said that this week? I thought that was cool. He said, you know what? At least I know time's got to go by. We don't know if this is real. We, we know that all, th all that through Scripture, wisdom says, wait and let's see. But he told us this week, you know what? None of that matters. He said to James Corden in a carpool karaoke or an airplane karaoke, you know what? I was dead. I've been the walking dead. And you know what happened? I've just become, a, I'm, I'm, I'm awake. I've been, I've, been, I've been asleep. I've been dead my entire life. And now, for the first time in my life, I've been awake. And I'm going to define myself by, by, by this. My generation, my life is going to be defined by what? The historical truth of Jesus. Because... Peter says when you become a Christian, you don't try to live a better life. You don't try to be like Jesus and maybe God will forgive you. What he's saying is this. You are treated as if you have died because you did die. You are treated as if you died for your sins. You are treated as if you've been raised. You are treated as if you have lived a perfect life because now you're united with Christ. And that is your life. And that is your death, and that is your resurrection. And if you believe and you attach yourself to Jesus, then that is the defining historical truth of your generation. Do we do that at West Town? Do you do that in your family room? His story becomes my story. But here's the thing. When we understand that, and our church can become that, it's beautiful. But here, let me just give you two enemies real quick, and then I'll, then I'll stop. Only got four minutes left. Here's the thing. We got two enemies. 
that define. The first is this. We have many people that define, them, that define themselves through moralism. And if you're a moralist and you're in this room, you say this, there is truth. And I will be saved by following it. You think, uh, you, you believe that there's truth, but here's, here's the thing. Um, you need to make sure that you fulfill it, right? But here's the thing. Moralists don't really love truth. It says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is truth. But if you really listen or sit down with a moralist, you know what they do? They hate truth. They hate truth. And the reason why they never create a new generation is because, you know what they do? When I become a moralist, I like to make little subcultures. Because moralistic people who are desperately trying to obey the truth and need to take the Bible and break it into little details and rules so they can obey it, you know what? When I do that and I, and I think, okay, I'm going to obey it like this, I begin to feel better than others. I begin to feel like I'm superior to people. That becomes my motivation. If I can morally beat somebody, if, if, if I'm in a moral competition and I do better than them, I, think I'm, I literally think I'm superior to them. And there are moralists out there. And they, and they take Christianity and they form it into this cult of moralism, which isn't true at all. And it changes the way that I deal with my business or other races or art. And they need to know that they are being good. And you know what? They are not free at all. And if you've been there, you know you're not free if you are a moralist. You are enchained to that. Right? And you live in that. I'm just trying to do the right thing. And it's not because of what Jesus has done for you. It's you're trying to get it right. And that is a cult. That is a type of generation. And he says, don't be a part of that corrupt generation. But here's the thing. You also have relativists. And the relativists, and maybe that's you, they say there's no truth. But here's the thing. A relativist has no way of reforming any culture. There's no way of saying anything is wrong. A relativist cannot say this is wrong and that is wrong. Why? Because they would be inconsistent. Think about this. They say everything is relevant or relative. Every culture is equally okay. But here's what maybe some of them would say. It's wrong to oppress women. Oh, you can't say that if you're a relativist. Either it's wrong to oppress women and therefore there is truth and you'd better deal with it or else all cultures, what? Are not relative. And so when you look at this and you look at the way in which this new generation, this um, Jesus generation was being formed, I have to ask myself, is this West Town? They devoted themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe. Believers were together and had everything in common. Here's, you know what I think? I think we're a church that's pretty good at evangelizing. I do. I think we do a pretty decent job. Not a perfect job, but a good job. I think we actually do an okay job at some level discipling some individually. But you know what? Has West Town become a new generation? I don't know. I don't think so. The way Peter talks about it in Acts 2, have we become that type 
of distinct people group, I think we're too individual. I think we're too scared of the mess of ourselves and others. And I think God wants us to work on that. When I read Acts 2, yeah, I think there's a number of people that love God's Word. And I, I think there's a lot of people in this church that pray. But you know, I don't think we do it together enough. I don't. When I read this, I, I want to do it together. But it will take, um, it will take feeling uncomfortable. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And that's you've got to break through the awkwardness. But you know what? If we're part of the same generation, if we literally define ourselves because of what Jesus has done, and we're no longer Americans, right? We're no longer whatever. We're no longer Floridians. We're Christians. We define ourselves because of the historical fact of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, as they did here. You know, they weren't Romans. They weren't Gentiles. They were Christians. They were Christ followers. That's, that, that, that's what defined them. Where are you? Are you really a part of a church? This defines the nature of a church. Not what it means to be saved, but what it means to be a part of of a church, which is part of salvation, Jesus says. Where are you? So here's what we're going to do. We've read God's word and we've heard the gospel and now we come to the Lord's table and we're going to do literally what the first century church did. This is how they built their church. They read the Bible, they took the Lord's Supper and they did it in each other's homes and they hung out together and they prayed. So we're going to do two of those things. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, here's what the Bible says. This table, Jesus is your host. And he says, come. I want you to eat. I want you to be spiritually fed. You can be fed by hearing God's word, but you also can be fed by taking God's word. Right? Eating God's word, if you will. He instituted this as a way to fill you. Now, if you have professed Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you have a personal relationship with Him, this is your table. If you haven't, we don't want you to come up. Not to, 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 to make you look different, to make you feel awkward. We don't want you to come up here and say something about yourself that's not true. We want you to be um, authentic and, and truthful about who you are. Maybe this is the morning where you, you want to you, you be a part of this type of generation that defines themselves because of what Jesus has done. Maybe instead of coming up here and receiving the Lord's Supper, you receive Christ into your heart for the first time. I think for some of you, you've investigated it, and it's time. Right? It's, 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 it's time to stop stalling. It's time to give your life over to the way and the truth and the life that Jesus said is the only thing that will fill you. It's what you've been waiting for your entire life. Some of you need to do that. So don't come up here and take the Lord's Supper. Receive Christ. And then after you receive Christ this morning, come and talk to me or one of the elders that you see up here. And let us pray over you and, and get you into the church to come up and baptize you. That would be beautiful. If November the 3rd were the day in your life where you realize God, His electing sovereign grace moved in you and changed you. That's, that's what we're